2: Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you have tuned in to The Word to Stand on for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. No matter what you've got on your heart or mind, we will do the best that we can to answer them. You can call us at 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877 877- 630-KSLR numerically that's 630-5757 you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer one more time 340 95 85 for your live calls and questions because it's Wednesday. We got some stuff going on. Second Samuel chapter eight. I'm going to finish the chapter tonight and just sort of tease you for next Wednesday night. Um, Maybe one of the best chapters in all of the Bible Second Samuel chapter 9, that's going to be one week from tonight uh, here at Calvary Chapel. You can watch it at calvarysa.com if you can't get here in person. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, because it's Wednesday, obviously tomorrow is Thursday. That means Paula will be live in studio with me, ladies, for the date day edition of the program. And if you need any encouragement or have any questions for Paula, Thursday is your day, and we'd love to have you do that. Okay, let's go to some questions that have been sent in. Our first one is from our mobile app that comes from Carlos. He says, Does the word the use of the word waters in Psalms 144, verse 7 mean anything other than water itself? How does it compare in its use as to the use of the word waters in Isaiah 55? Verse one, chapter fifty-five, verse one, Psalm forty-four. Let me read it to you. Uh, the the verse in question, Carlos, it says, "Reach down your hand from on high." This is somebody who's asking God for help and for deliverance. Reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners. Now, what we have to remember about the. Um, Psalms, and and the same is true of course with Job and with Proverbs and with Ecclesiastes and uh, with um, um, Song of Solomon, Uh, these are poems, so this is poetic language. So here what we have, the use of the word waters, simply means the mighty waters, simply means trouble. Uh, in, In the poem it says, from the hands of foreigners, in other words, he is being persecuted, he is under duress, and he's praying that God would deliver him. So waters is used there in a metaphorical sense. The mighty waters indicate what a terrible, terrible problem it is. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, the context there is different. Um, Jesus, again, he's speaking figuratively. And lots of times in the prophets, Carlos, you'll find the same thing. You'll find metaphor being used or symbols being used. In this particular case, um, when we talk about coming to the waters, it's obviously water to drink, but this is the, the, the verse, Isaiah 55 verse 1, that Jesus would have had in mind when He was speaking to the woman of Samaria, and He'd say, anyone who comes to me uh, who is thirsty and takes a drink will never thirst again. So He was referring to this particular prophecy, and He was explaining what that, that living water is really all about. So in the Psalms, it's a metaphor, it's a symbol, um, troubles and oppression. In Psalm 55, it's different. It is water, but then Jesus turns it into that uh, water that symbolizes the water of life. You ever think about that? If you are thirsty, come to me and drink, he said. And that's something that I tell people all the time. You know, we have a, a need. Um, I, I've shared this with all of you before, but when I'm praying for uh, the people in our city, the people here at Calvary Chapel, um, I'm praying for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused. When I get to the hungry, that's the same idea that Jesus was communicating there in in Isaiah 55. Uh, And in his conversations, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. When I say I'm praying for the hungry, the Lord knows that the way I mean that is those who want more from the Lord, those who are lacking in their relationship and want more of Jesus in their hearts. It's a good thing if you're hungry, come and eat. If you're thirsty, come and drink. And Jesus' promise to the woman at the well in Samaria was essential for us to believe that if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who satisfies, the only one. So, Carlos, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. Now, this one didn't come in before some of the others to follow, but it came in, uh, and because it's timely, I'm going to um, respond. This is from somebody named Dee. Uh, And she says, will you comment on Bill Heibel's resignation last night? Um, When I got the question, I wasn't aware that he had resigned yet, but I was uh, aware that he was going to. Um, This is just one of those things that's really, really sad. Bill Heibel, for those of you who don't know, is the founding pastor of the Willow Creek Church uh, in the Chicago area one of the prototypes for the seeker-sensitive movement. Um, um, and I say this not to our credit, but just because it's true, he has been one of the most influential church leaders uh, in my 27 years with the Lord. Not, not in a good way, but he's been a, uh, an influential leader. Um, people have tried to follow his model because it was so successful. Uh, it was a model that was followed by Rick Warren at Saddleback in Orange County, California. Um, it was just a model that came up. Let's find out what people want and give it to them. And of course, that's not the way church should ever be run. So, having said that, uh, let me let me deal just briefly with um, his resignation, D. Because uh, obviously, this is really not any of my business other than to be sad and to pray. Um, Bill Hybels has been accused by various women of having inappropriate relationships. Now, none of those women said that he had actual sex with them, um, but that he harassed them, that he insinuated that he wanted sex, that he was always flirty and those kind of things. And once the number of women started coming out, that number, of course, grows in the climate the world that we live in is currently experiencing. Um, He was said to have spoken badly about his wife to all of those people. Um, Some of them were influential elders, unfortunately. Willow Creek has uh, women elders and women pastors. Um, And evidently, they didn't handle it very well. They thought it would go away. They thought they could control it, uh, but they couldn't. So last night, um, he gave in to the pressure and resigned. Now, he already planned to retire um, at the end of the year. But this sort of moved up the timetable. Now let me talk about this for a few minutes because I think this is important. We who are pastors have a responsibility to live lives above reproach. It doesn't mean that we're better than other people, it doesn't mean that somehow we're more holy than other people, but we've got the Word of God in our hands and we're the ones who are communicating it via the teaching of the Word. And I'm getting really, really tired of men who say one thing publicly and then live something else in private. I think it's a shame, it's an embarrassment to the Church of Jesus Christ. More importantly, it's misrepresenting Jesus himself. And I think that's what happens when we forfeit a couple of things. First, it's what happens when we forfeit our faith really in the Word of God, doing the work it's supposed to do. You know, church model, that preaches a gospel message that's very light and easy and not offensive. Well, it shouldn't surprise any of us when these things happen to those leaders in those churches. If they really believed in the Word and if they believed in the power of God's Word, then what they would have done is they would have lived it. They would have lived it. And unfortunately... You forfeit the authority. You forfeit the power. You can put on a good show, a good presentation, and Willow Creek did for sure. You can have great worship, and they did. You can have a church with 12,000 people in attendance every Sunday, and they did. You can plant a bunch of churches that'll look just like you, and they did. Smaller, but nonetheless, same model. But you're not feeding the people. You're not preparing the people for life. And so I, I personally think he probably should have resigned a very long time ago or made a decision that he's going to stand on God's Word. So it shouldn't surprise any of us D. When somebody who doesn't believe in God's Word enough to teach it, straightforwardly teach it, falls into a pattern of misbehavior on their own. Now I don't know what he did or didn't do. Uh, Bill Hybels has no effect on my life. I, I don't know him personally. I've never met him. I know people that do. I understand that in person he's a really nice man. But I want to say this again. If we're not, we who are pastors, if we're not the same in private as we are from the pulpit, then we have no business being in the pulpit in the first place. No business at all. People sometimes marvel that Paula is at every service I teach. She's here all three services on Sunday, she's here Wednesday night, she's here on Friday and she sits in the front row so I can see her. And people think, well, don't you think that's hard? You make her come? First of all, I don't make her come. Paula loves being here. Maybe she can address this a little bit tomorrow, but here's my motive for having her in the front row. If I'm not the same person at home in private with her, and she knows me better than anybody else in this world, if I'm not the same person at home that I am representing myself to be in the pulpit, Paula because she she's she's one in whom there's no guile she can't hide her feelings she has no poker face at all and I would be able to see in her face if I was being a hypocrite and my deal with God is that if I ever see that face that's when I'll quit now, I get to that place, I'll be in the flesh, so who knows what I would do, but that's my deal walking with the Lord every day. We pastors have got to be in private who we say we are in public and we've got to honor the one that we represent every time we stand in the pulpit and teach His Word. It couldn't be more important than that. So D, I hope uh, that's enough. I, I don't really have anything else. We've We've simply got to be Uh, Men who practice what we preach, and personally, I cannot listen to somebody who I know has not lived a life consistent with what they teach. I'm not talking about expecting anybody to be perfect, but there's no way I can listen to anybody who I know is duplicitous. So that's the best I can do. Let's go to San Antonio, Texas, and talk with Dave on line one. Dave, thanks for holding. You're on the air.
3: You bet. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in on this Bill Hybels thing a little bit. I am not. Uh, I am not uh, in any way uh, defending, uh, nor am I castigating. Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, we don't necessarily know that he has been so dishonest. I, as far as I know, uh, it, it appears to me that been allegations made. And, and, and we're living in a world when people, when one person makes an allegation, especially with somebody who's high profile, mm-hmm. other people jump on the bandwagon, whether they've got a legitimate thing or not, because they don't like him or whatever. My point is, I'm not, I'm not, uh, well, I'm, again, I'm not defending anything about him. I don't know, I don't, I don't know much about him. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that before we start, uh, um, uh, to, uh, uh, uh you know, cast aspersions. Uh, we need to maybe have more information, and and that perhaps he's guilty of everything that has been alleged. Maybe, on the other hand, there are allegations, as far as I know. And, uh, and, and I put myself in that position. If i if I, if, if there are things that are allegedly said about me, and and one thing, you know, it, oh, let's say that I was the pastor of the church, which I have been, by the way, uh, and mm-hmm. people started just jumping on me and and and, and I might I might for the sake for the good of a, the body of Christ say you know what and for am own good sake, I'm done uh, this is uh, this this is not a uh, it's it's I don't know it's kind of like I kind of think of Paul when he was when he was talking to some of the Jews in the book of Acts and he says you know what yeah you, you guys aren't listening I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm going to the gentiles They'll listen. Mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yep I do so Okay. Dave, I appreciate
2: it. I appreciate it. Very, very balanced comment. And uh, I think one that we would all be wise to listen to. A couple of more things on this based on Dave's comment from my perspective. Uh, one, um, he resigned because of the allegations against him. He does claim those allegations are false. Um, there is a lot of evidence. There is a fairly large number of women who are telling Uh, Similar stories. Um, Some of those people are elders in his church with long standing in the church. Um, And these are accusations he hasn't been able to shake. So like Dave, uh, I don't uh, defend nor do I castigate, I don't know. Here's, I think, Dave, from my perspective, and I'm just one pastor. If there are people that Jesus has entrusted to me and they can't listen to me because of the accusations that others are making against me whether true or false, then I cease to be effective as a pastor. God knows whether I'm innocent or guilty. Um, So when people start making accusations and those accusations sort of run wild. Um, it, it, unfortunately, it shouldn't be this way, but it is. Um, it, it limits our ability to effectively communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in a meaningful way. You know, a, a group of, uh, I, think, I think the number in Bill Hybels case is 12 women over a long period of time who are telling very similar stories. When you got a church of 12,000, 12 is nothing. But in this day and age of social media, the accusations just won't go away, and now people are coming to church wondering what's true instead of coming to hear from Jesus. So it's really, really important, and if nothing else, it has become very clear, and Bill Hybels has said this himself, it's become abundantly clear that he hasn't lived his life in such a way to be above reproach in order to be able to avoid these accusations, you know, Dave, and for anybody else out there, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a really different kind of person. I'm not. Uh, I, I don't go places. I'm, I'm one of those rare people that can virtually account for every minute of my life. I'm not alone. Um, um, I don't go places. I, 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 when, when I travel to conferences or retreats, Paula is with me. Uh, if she's not with me, I always take someone else. So it's just one of those things where if, if you if you know that people are watching, and believe me, people are watching, they always are, then you've got to live your life out in the open as though everybody were watching and as though some were waiting for you to fall. It is a tragedy that we live in the world that we do. It's a tragedy that accusation has become equal to fact in the minds of the people reading the accusations, both secular and inside the church. But you know, we who are not careful guarding this precious privilege that Jesus has given to us, we're going to pay the price. If somebody said, well, Pastor On, you, you did this to me, or you said this to me, and you spoke suggestively, I would say, well, when did I say it? They would have told me I could tell them right where I was at that particular time. Here's what Bill Hybels said himself, I placed myself in situations it would have been far wiser to avoid. I was naive about the dynamics those situations created. I'm sorry for the lack of wisdom on my part. I commit to never putting myself in similar situations again. That's a direct quote. Um, you know, we have to be more diligent. Dave, great comment, very balanced. Thank you very much. Three four zero ninety is an anonymous question that came in. Is it possible to have sinned so deeply that I can never be forgiven? Uh, Anonymous, it is not. Now, whenever you're hearing that or whenever you're feeling that you've sinned beyond God's ability to forgive, you need to identify that instantly as a lie from the devil. That's his job. The devil lies. He's trying to get you to, to walk away from Jesus. He's trying to get you to feel so convicted, so guilty, that you just sort of shrink away and don't serve the Lord ever again. God forgave a murderer, a man named Saul of Tarsus. Who was the Apostle Paul. Jesus himself, from the cross where he was killed, said, Father, forgive them. Stephen, as we all know, in the 6th chapter of Acts, or 7th chapter, actually, he said, "'Lay not this sin to their charge or to their account,' as they were stoning him." I've been anonymous, privileged to be at the deathbed of people who gave their life to Jesus at the very last moment. And that's usually one of the questions I have to deal with, how could God forgive me now when I come to Him now after all the things I've done? And my answer is always, He's eager to forgive. But you've got to believe and you've got to ask. And some do, others don't. But God is always willing to forgive. And if you think, even for a moment, that your sin is greater than God's fountain of grace, you don't know who He is. So it's not possible to have sinned beyond God's grace. The Bible says there's only one sin that's unforgivable, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, anonymous, is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit unto death. What's his work? His work is to witness about Jesus, to convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And if we reject his mission in our lives and die in that condition then there's no remedy for sin left so it's not possible to have sinned beyond God's ability to forgive you identify that as a lie and don't ever deal with it again just make up your mind I know what's true And I'm not going to listen to the lie. I think part of the problem, it doesn't matter whether it's temptation or feeling guilty or feeling like God can't forgive, there's a number of situations that if we would simply be able to quickly identify that is a lie from the devil, then we'd be able to deal with it a lot more effectively, I think. Here is, let me see, I've got three minutes inside of the break, two minutes. Uh, Zach wants to know, I know everyone will be judged, but how can Christians be judged in the end? Our sins are forgiven already, so I don't understand. Zach, you're absolutely right. Our sins, past, present, future, are all forgiven, covered by the blood of Jesus. So never doubt that. But yes, we will be judged. We will all, Paul writes, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What are we going to be judged for? We're going to be judged for our works. But it's a, a judgment of rewards and loss of rewards It's not a judgment that deals with heaven or hell it's not a salvation issue at all it's a judgment of works and on that day when we stand before the Lord when he takes us to be with him whether by natural means or by the rapture of the church we're going to have that great and glorious moment where he looks at us and says have I got some rewards for you for some it's not going to be so glorious because he's going to say here's the rewards I had for you but I had to give them to somebody else because you weren't faithful and what he's going to do, he's going to judge whether our works are good, and literally in the Greek, it's good for nothing. So if our works are good for nothing, they were works that were motivated by the wrong heart, the wrong spirit. They were works designed to bring us attention instead of bringing God glory. Maybe we did them grumbling and complaining. There's no rewards for those kind of works. Maybe we gave to the church grumbling that we had to give it all. There's no reward for that kind of work. So what do we do? We simply stand before God to receive our rewards or lose them. But that's the judgment, Zach. I hope that answers your question. We've got 30 minutes left on the Wednesday show, three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from The Word to Santa Life. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our program on Wednesday. Quick reminder, Second Samuel chapter 8, I'm going to be finishing that tonight. And then tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in the studio on the date day edition of the program. In response to something Dave said, one one more comment that came to mind regarding this whole thing with Bill Hybels, and this is just a general thing: Um, all of the accusers have said the same thing regarding uh, Bill Hybels and the way he spoke about his relationship with his wife. Um, and, And this isn't just if you're a pastor. I want all of us to remember, we're going to stand before Jesus and give account of our ministry. Men, every one of us are going to stand before Jesus and give account of our ministry before our wives. Now, Jesus, when He speaks to my heart, He talks. He calls Paul a precious. And here's what He's going to say to me. He's going to say, how did you do with precious? I gave you this wonderful gift. She prayed for you for 13 years. How did you do with precious? And if I didn't represent Jesus well, Especially in that most valuable of all gifts. What am I going to say to him if I talked bad about her to other people? If I spoke unkindly to her? Or if I disregarded her feelings or her opinions or thoughts? What kind of a leadership role would that be? So, men and women. Never say anything unkind about your spouse. Now, if your husband's beating you, ladies, it's not unkind to say, I'm in danger, my husband's abusing me. That's not what I'm talking about. We're just talking about the normal little things that we argue about or complain about. You know, the one who's closest to us is always the one who can get on our nerves the most. Never ever speak badly about your spouse to others. Because the day is coming when you're going to explain that to Jesus, and I'm just telling you up front, there is no explanation for it at all. I'll follow that with a question that came in from Ed. Ed wants to know, what is the most important thing a husband can do for his wife? Ed, there's only one thing that matters for a husband in terms of benefiting his wife, and that's you being sold out for Jesus Christ that's the most important thing the only really important thing everything else that you will do will flow from that so if Jesus isn't your priority then you're not representing Jesus to your wife the way he wants you to represent him I would also add that that's the most important thing that we men can do for our children as well you know when Paul and I do marriage conferences um, I, I say every time, one of the things that I'll say without fail is that the most important thing you can do for your children is to cherish their mother. Now, we live in a world of throwaway divorces. We live in a, in a time when, when um, we, can, we can leave for any reason at all. And it's so common, it hardly raises an eyebrow anymore. We think that God wants us to be happy, God wants us to be obedient, and if you don't cherish your wife, you're failing your kids as well, and God forbid, men, that you should say anything bad about your wife to her children, and yet it happens all the time. One of the things I'm going to mention tonight in a completely different context than this is the, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. There's no way, if your house has got a loud volume, if there's acrimony between husband and wife, if kids are being dragged in, if they're listening to you, husband, or you, wife, say horrible things about your spouse. That's not the Spirit of God at all. We have got to be men and women who understand that we're responsible to God for these things. So, Ed, the most important thing you can do is to love Jesus with all of your heart. And if you do that, I promise you, your wife will feel like the most beautiful, the most precious, the most loved woman on the face of the earth. And that really is our job. Three four zero ninety is a question from anonymous from our email inbox Uh, Pastor Ron I'm so thankful for your wisdom and for this radio ministry I'm not sure about my wisdom but I'm grateful for the radio ministry as well my question is if I am saved would I be forgiven if I leave my wife due due to her believing in a religion that is in opposition to our Lord Jesus Christ please forgive me for saying but I'm starting to feel a little resentment toward my wife due to her offending the Jesus I love so much I know I should be patient and pray for a solution, but I feel my faith is not where it should be in order to hang in there. Anonymous, and I want to say this as kindly as I can, but I also need now to be direct. You're a man of God. What your wife feels about your Jesus has nothing to do with your walk. Nothing whatsoever. So here's how you can be used by God in your own home. Start looking at your wife as the object of your faith rather than the enemy of your faith. Let her know what it feels like to be loved by a man of God. And if she's in a false religion and every other religion, apart from believing in Jesus Christ, having a relationship through being born again, every religion is false. So show her the truth in action. And when you combine that with prayer, I promise you, God will work. Now, how would I know that? Well, I was the other end of your equation for all those years after Paula got saved. And you know what? No matter what I did to Paula, now Paula got angry with me and she lost her temper at times and uh, I, I, I caused so much pain. But you know what? I could never steal her joy. And in the end, Anonymous, that was really what got me. I I, I was a control freak, and I thought I could control her, but I couldn't, because no matter how miserable I tried to make her life, she had this joy. And honestly, it made me jealous. There was another man in Paula's life, and it wasn't me, it was Jesus. And it drove me crazy, and I kept vowing to make sure I busted that relationship up, but I couldn't do it. And so in my defiance, I got so desperate, things got so bad, that the only thing that I knew I needed was her joy, her Jesus. So here's what you do. You demonstrate to your wife who your Jesus is be kind and be patient God was patient with you he was more patient with you than you are being with her and never ever use your wife as an excuse for your faith not being where it should be it would be a sin for you a man of God to divorce her, to leave her now, the Bible says if she leaves you, if the unbeliever leaves, let him or let her leave. But that's not what you asked about. If you leave your wife due to her believing in a false religion, understand how badly God wants to use you in your own home. And, and by the way, if He can't use you in your own home, why would He use you anywhere else? It bothers me so deeply, and it happens all the time when men will come into my office in counseling and say, well, you know, I just can't follow God on my own. I need my wife to be with me. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be the leader. Will it be pleasant? No. Will it be easy? No. But can you do it? The answer is yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it would be a sin to leave her. If you just left her because that's the easy way out, what would that say about your faith in Christ? Open your Bible. Spend time with Jesus. And let the Lord deal with you. Let him fix you. Let him empower you. And then he'll use you to win her. First Peter chapter 3, beginning verse 16 says, Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So, Anonymous, those are your marching orders. 1 Peter chapter 3 is a passage of Scripture that saved me because that's what God spoke to Paula how an unbelieving spouse should be treated by the believing husband or wife so thank you for the question i hope you still like me 3409585 here is a question from our email inbox from k in the new testament it talks about how when the rapture happens the dead in christ will rise with us if as believers we die before Jesus comes for his bride, we go directly to heaven, right? So what does the dead in Christ will rise mean? One of the things we have to remember about Thessalon- uh, the, the letters to the, the churches in Thessalonica okay, is that Paul was answering a very specific charge. Um, you know, they really believed that Jesus was coming. Uh, I've said this many times on the show, I think the real power in the first century church was that they really expected that Jesus was going to come. They'd look at the eastern sky every morning and think, He's coming, He's coming, today could be the day. And then people in Thessalonica started dying. Now remember, Paul was only there for less than four weeks. So he taught on these things, but their faith wasn't grounded yet. And his people died. There were false teachers. The devil always has false teachers around, and those false teachers were saying, very simply, that that um, well, they missed out. You know, you we're expecting the rapture, and there's no rapture, and they died, so they just missed out. And of course, you can imagine how crushed they how crushed they were. Paul will later say so. Encourage each other with these words with his answer. So here's what he meant when he said that. The dead in Christ will have already risen. They will in no way precede. King James uses the word prevent. It meant something different back in the 17th century. They will in no wise precede because the dead in Christ will rise first. What that means, Paul says in his letters to the Corinthians, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So all that means is that when we come, uh, if, if the rapture happened, Now, right now, before I sign off the air today, when we got to heaven with Jesus in an instant in the twinkling of an eye, we would find out, Kay, that the people who died in Christ before us have already risen. This is not a reference, as we typically read it, to um, a physical body and a spirit being reunited. It reads that way when we read it that's the language that we have we live in a time and space dimension but what it means is that when somebody goes to be with Jesus they already have their physical resurrected body in that moment we will be like he is John writes so it's not a reference to a nanosecond before the rapture the graves are going to open and we're all going to float up it just means that they're already with Jesus What a wonderful, wonderful thing to consider. You know, one of the great things about the uh, Apostle Paul movie, um, uh, again, there's a lot of creative license, but uh, they deal with this question of uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, I think quite effectively. Um, Paul was always tormented. That was the devil doing it, but he was always tormented by the faces of those that he had killed. Um, Stephen. There was one little girl in the movie that that was put to death at his command because her family was Christian, and he saw her face in dreams and nightmares, really. But when he lost his head at the very end of the movie, they were there waiting for him, and that little girl was at the front of the crowd. So the dead in Christ means they've already risen, okay? So that's what's going to happen. Thank you very much. I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question, an important question from Steve. Pastor Ron, what do you think Christians should do when friends fall from the faith? Should we remain friends or turn away from them? Steve, our job is always just one thing, and that's to follow Jesus. I want to say that again. Our job is one thing, and that's to follow Jesus. So if you've got a friend, somebody who professed faith in Christ, and they fall away from the faith, and they start living in the world, how could we remain friends with them, or buddies with them? Now, it doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for them. But you see, you can't follow Jesus and follow your friends. If you go chasing after them, by the way, that's Jesus' job, the Holy Spirit's job, not yours. If you follow them, then the distance between you and Jesus is going to be too great and you're going to end up getting picked off by the enemy yourself so when our friends fall from the faith when they start living ungodly lives they don't cease being our friends but we can't hang around with them Why? Because they don't love our Jesus. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And if you do, as I said, you're going to get too far from the Lord yourself. You know, many, many years ago, and as a pastor, this is always the the, the heart of a true pastor. When people, and we see it all the time, people come and go. And it breaks our hearts. It literally breaks our hearts. And there's such a temptation to go get them. Sometimes we feel like the pitcher coming out of the bullpen in the bottom of the ninth to win the game. But we can't. You see, if we go get people, Jesus never takes a backward step. He's always moving. And our job is to follow Him so closely that if He would stop, suddenly we'd just bump right into Him. Well, you can't do that if you're going back to get people. The way we respond is to pray for those people, to love those people, and be available to those people. If they ever come back, they're welcome. We love them. We're not angry. Our feelings aren't hurt. But in the meantime, we've got to follow Jesus. I know it sounds sensitive. It sounds so caring to let your friends vent. It sounds so mature to spend time with them and to love them. But are you really loving anybody if you're letting them go to hell without putting up a fight? So Steve, the most important thing you can do is you follow Jesus, don't follow your friends. doesn't mean we have to turn away, it just means that they're no longer walking in the same direction that we're walking. If we ever change our mind, then we're going to get lost in the process. So, Steve, that's the best I can do with that. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is an anonymous question that says, If Jesus is God, why doesn't he show himself to the world so everyone would believe? It seems like he isn't real or he would do this. Well, anonymous, he already did. See, that's the thing I never understand about questions like this one. He already did. You know, today, in San Antonio, Texas, if Jesus showed up downtown at the city courthouse, county courthouse, and started proclaiming, I'm Jesus, we would have him committed. We would think he's a nut. There's some nut who claims to be God. But you see, here's the thing we need to remember. He already appeared. And he did unbelievable, unthinkable miracles. And they didn't believe. They killed him and he rose from the dead. And they didn't believe. So what makes you think that if Jesus showed up at the county courthouse today on the steps and said, well, here I am. What makes you think that we'd believe. We won't. Our hearts are so hard. The truth is anonymous is we like to sin too much and we don't want anybody messing with our freedom to sin. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 16. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That's Jesus when he's telling the story about the rich man and Lazarus when the man who was in torment, wanted somebody to go tell his family, his brothers. Jesus said, no, they don't believe the law, they don't believe the prophets, they won't even believe if somebody rose from the dead. That was prophetic because Jesus hadn't been crucified yet, but obviously it turned out to be true because they didn't believe. Now some did, but most rejected him. So Jesus is God. There's no if. He proved it. They killed Him. He didn't stay dead. I wonder what kind of proof you'd need more than the fact of His death and resurrection. I don't understand the question. I never have and I probably never will. Here is a question from Pat. She says, or he says, I could be either, I have trouble with God being jealous how can God be jealous of anyone or anything? Uh, Pat, lots of people have trouble with that, but but it's just a misunderstanding. You know, when we think of the word jealousy, we know jealousy is is a horrible thing. It's a bad fruit of the flesh. Um, but we're jealous of people because they have something we want or something we don't have. God is not like that. He's jealous for us he's not jealous of us he's jealous for us what that means is he wants only the best for you and anything that you allow to get in between you and what he wants for you, well he hates that because it's the reason he died I love the fact that God is jealous for me Sometimes, as humans, we don't have the good sense to be jealous for ourselves. We don't jealously guard our time with the Lord. We don't jealously guard our time in the Word. We don't jealously protect our time in church serving the body of Christ. I mean, think about it. Kids today, they play soccer or baseball or football. Um, used to be, when I grew up, that none of those things ever happened on Sunday. Now they schedule tournaments and people are gone throughout the week and you see families missing church all the time. You say, well, well why, why have you missing? Well, you know, my kids had soccer, my kids had baseball or, or any number of other things. And God is jealous for us because we're the ones who are missing out. I think sometimes we Christians have to be jealous for our own walk with the Lord, our own relationship. And the way to do that is to guard it. Well, guard God, God guards it for us because He's jealous for us. Not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. Pat, it's a good thing that God is jealous for you. That's how much He loves you. And if you'll understand that, um, it'll change the way you live your life, I promise you. We have just... Uh, about less than two minutes now so let me see if I get a quick one here's what I can do two minutes right now The Bible. this is from Beverly the Bible says no one can see God and live yet people did see God in the Old Testament and did not die can you explain that uh, I can Beverly everyone who saw God in the Old Testament saw Jesus they saw Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance remember Manoah and Mrs. Manoah Samson's parents when the definite article angel of the Lord appeared to them he said oh we have seen God and now we must die and Mrs. Manoah the one with good sin said well if he wanted to kill us we'd already be dead so we're not going to die and that's when the, the announcement came that they would have a child who would be the deliverer of Israel Samson over and over Abraham saw God but he saw Jesus in the form of Melchizedek in one occasion, but there were other occasions when God appeared to him, Sodom and Gomorrah among them. So they saw Jesus. John chapter 12, I think off the top of my head it's verse 23, explains this whole thing to us. People say, well, no, they says an angel. How do you know it was Jesus? Well, John chapter 12, verse 23 says that when Isaiah saw his vision of the throne—it was Jesus he saw. You see, we can't see the glory of God, or we would die. But we can see Jesus and live. Thanks, Beverly. Hey, thanks for the questions today, and the calls listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Day Day edition of the Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, we'll be back at four o'clock. See you then. Bye bye.